0: Welcome to the E-Commerce Disruptors Podcast, where alongside digital marketing experts, we give you our best tips, techniques, and insights on how you can be a disruptor in your industry. In today's episode, we talk to Jonathan Soares, the CEO and founder of Agency Labs, a web and mobile engineering partner to some of the world's leading agencies. If you're interested in what the future has in store for e-commerce websites, including cryptocurrency and dynamic web design, keep listening. I hope you enjoy this episode of Ecommerce Disruptors. So hi, welcome to Ecommerce Disruptors, presented by Electric Engine, where we give you tips, techniques, and advice to help you disrupt your industry. Uh, My name is Noel Lopez, and today we have Jonathan Soros from Agency Labs. Hey everyone, nice to meet you. Great to hang. So Jonathan, great to have you come in. I know you're coming from uh, Bethel, and- why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure.
1: So, uh, I'm the founder and CEO of Agency Labs. We're a full service web, mobile, and software development company uh, that partners exclusively with in house and also traditional agencies, mm-hmm. where they're a go to development partner. So, we do a lot of front end, back end, you know, technical architecting, uh, QA testing, and all the, the bells and whistles that go into building a lot of cool stuff.
0: All right, I've got to ask. So you started out in the consumer products uh, world and made your way into technology, uh, technology, and the agency world. How how'd that happen?
1: So my first company that I started, um, it's a company called Q Products, and I had this v- idea or vision that natural, organic, specialty products would eventually become mainstream national brands. And, and you with, that, right. <laughs> you know, uh, with that, with that, ten thousand dollars of my own money. I went off uh, and built the brand nationally. We were in over 15,000 stores. Um, I had a fully outsourced model where I had outsourced co-packers, um, distributors, um, you know, sales reps, you name it. I kind of managed that all for my dorm room. Um, ran that for five years, dealt with the recession, and once I transitioned out of the business, I started thinking to myself, what do I want to do next? And I knew that um, I want to get into, into technology. I also had worked with a lot of you know, marketing, advertising agencies, branding agencies when I was building that consumer products business and I had a lot of, you know, crappy experiences. (laughs) So when I was trying to figure out, I said, Hey, you know, there's, there's a problem in this, in this area and this arena. Um, I started asking a lot of questions, meeting with a lot of agencies trying to figure out what their pain points were. Um, and I found out that one of the biggest issues that most agencies have is scaling technology. Everyone wants to be digital. They don't necessarily know how. So being a good entrepreneur, I said, hey, there's a problem. I want to fix it. I don't want to have an offshore shop or a bunch of freelancers. I want to build a professional engineering company to help these agencies scale their digital practices and deliver things properly. Um, and then Agency Labs was born. Fast forward in seven years, we've done over five 600 projects for agencies and brands of all sizes.
0: So really, you're an entrepreneur at heart. Then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you find the problem, you want to fix it. Exactly. Definitely. And... I know you mentioned you've worked with some agencies and brands. Um, What are some of the agencies and brands that you have worked with? So we've worked with, um, on the West Coast, Hyphen,
1: uh, Taco Truck, and Midwest. We've worked with uh, Agency EA, Modge, uh, Studio Blue. There's a few agencies sprinkled around throughout there. On the East Coast, where most of our clients are, Um, I mean, Connecticut, Minson Hope, Cronin. Um, We've worked with uh, Scrum 50 in the city. Havas, Ogilvy, Publicis, um, you know, Digital Pulp. You know, yeah. we've done projects with uh, Five Stone, Armchair. Um, did work a while back with Stink Digital. We've done work with uh, Your Majesty. I mean, over the years, it's been a, kind of a plethora of different agencies. Some of them, it's you know, one project a year. Some, it's you know, three, five, you know, ten projects More collaborative a year. Throughout. Yeah, yeah it just mm-hmm. really depends on if they have an in-house team of engineers. Um, where we're kind of augmenting their team with overflow support, or if um, they don't have that and they're relying on us heavily to be that kind of, you know, outsourced CTO slash engineering partner to be more so more full service.
0: Yeah. So at at some point, I'm assuming that. With these agencies you're working with, you're you're their go-to partner for for the projects that, that that they're bringing you in. Exactly, it could
1: it could be you know scoping, you know pitching, bidding projects with them, yeah. being involved in, in client meetings. We could be fully white labeled. We really don't care. Um, we like to be involved as much as we can. Um, you know, we'll help them. You know, go through you know production workflows. You know, estimating and planning things out to the actual development workflows. Um, then we get into like QA testing and you know deployment and launch. So. We're literally their end-to-end partner, and they choose to leverage us as much as they want.
0: When, when you are brought in as a partner for um, these projects, do you prefer to have those meetings directly with uh, you know that client, or would you rather kind of stick to the white label? I mean, I love
1: interacting as much as possible, um, especially with the client. I mean, nowadays things are so transparent that yeah. you know someone sees me, they go on LinkedIn, like, oh, you know, Jonathan isn't part of so-and-so agency. So m- most of the agencies that we work with nowadays, it's they're, you know, they're disclosing their trusted partners because what clients are looking for are specialists. They know that their agency partner is going to kill it when it comes to like design and strategy and concepting, but they want to know that they have the best of the best from an engineering standpoint because most agencies and most clients have had a really bad experiences working with developers or development shops as a it's whole. It's tough. Yeah. So
0: knowing that they have a, a team that's going to be able to address that correctly is is exactly the
1: of mind i mean you know you nailed it like peace of mind is what we sell day in and day out yeah. it's the most valuable kind of commodity that we have is you know a client knowing that you know we're going to deliver on time on budget you know things are going to make sense you know we're never going to go dark i mean i give you a laundry list yeah. of all the things <laughs> that agencies and clients have experienced working with you know developers it's we exist to combat every one of those issues
0: and I, I think that that helps too with that approach, especially considering how much of, especially on the development side, there's there's so little understanding about what's going on sometimes, and, and they're like kind yeah. of relying on you a hundred percent to be that expert. Sure. So that. Giving them that peace of mind and just just helps them sleep that much better.
1: Oh, absolutely! And because we're not taking, a, you know, we're a, a biased approach. You know, we're not a WordPress shop. You know, we have, or a Drupal shop. You know, we're, you know, an open source development partner. We have to touch on all these different technologies. So yeah. the advice that we're providing, you know, it's it's completely agnostic to to, to you know what the the client um is 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 looking for or or what we think is is the best solution it's it's really you know tailored to what we think the project should entail and and what's the best tool for that specific objective yeah it's preference
0: over or not 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 so much it's really solving their need versus what preference you know i've seen it before with agencies where they they kind of always try to sell in a solution even though it might not necessarily be the right one um and i know you mentioned uh in-house agencies earlier um Tell us a little bit about that and, and how you feel that kind of impacts the agency world
1: so in-house agencies is they've been around for a while um you know you, you see a lot of publications like ad age and you know the like that say you know what direct clients can never build out an in-house agency yeah it's never going to work but you know what we've been seeing especially over the last you know three or four years is a big transition of agency folks moving over to the to the direct client side yeah uh, because yeah. They like the singular focus of working on one brand or a portfolio of brands for for one specific account um, the work life balance sometimes it's the compensation sometimes it's the overall kind of lack of stress um, that they don't that they aren't exposed to that you know working at a, t- a traditional agency so we're seeing you know great talent going over to that side, and clients i mean they're getting smart to you know, different practices that especially larger agencies have been definitely you know, used to, you know, benefiting from, and they're looking at costs, they're looking at how, you know, ad budgets are being spent, they're looking at how things are being built. You know, why are you spending a million dollars on a website and charging a developer $25 <laughs> an hour in India? You know, clients are seeing that and they're like, hey, wait, you know, something has to change. But the ironic thing is that I mean, on the media spend, on, on creative services to some degree, we're seeing that capacity going in-house. Um, it's obviously uh, still in flux because most you know end clients, they can't offer every solution in-house really well. So there is still room for collaboration. I mean, on our side on the dev side, they're still having the same problems that most agencies are having with technical talent. Because most engineers don't want to be developing the same technology day in and day out. They want to challenge. So they yeah. want a challenge. They want to constantly be shifting and changing and evolving. Um, most corporations or IT teams, um, you know, it's it's traditional IT. They're not building really complex interfaces or really robust, you know, enterprise level websites. It's more internal infrastructure type of IT. So they're defaulting to a lot of you know offshore you know segments of their organization to deploy these pro- you know projects. And they're having a lot of issues.
0: That's one thing we see a lot of is there's this stigma around offshoring and and anyone really just there's almost that peace of mind knowing that it's it's being done in house versus then being sold off to someone else. And like you said in India, um, you want to be able to have that resource at your disposal right then and there instead of there's so many issues you run into that um, or into when you do that that it's something you always want to avoid. Oh, 100%. That's why like all of our developers are full time. They work from our
1: office in Connecticut. I mean, we can literally walk over to their desk if there's some kind of a issue or, you know, answer that we need on something. And that's our biggest sell um, is is having that level of communication and access where most companies are going off and they're waiting a day or two to get feedback on something. You know, things are getting delayed. They're not being done on time. You know, budget is kind of getting off off the rails. And that's something that most people, you know, after a while they've experienced that they never want to go go down that road again, and they're willing to spend more to get that peace of mind that we talked about, as opposed to you know hopefully to get something cheap and quick out the door.
0: Exactly, and also I, I think I've just noticed uh, overall with in-house agencies, I feel. There's definitely much more room for collaboration with, with agencies that are brought in. Sure. Uh, they're much more receptive to it. It kind of goes off that, that plate you said with the expertise. They There's there's no shame in admitting that, hey, we need to bring in an expert and then let's work on this together versus trying to do it all in-house.
1: Especially if you're dealing with agency folks that are in-house now, they get the collaboration mindset. Because if you're at a holding company um, and there's you know 50 agencies in that holding company portfolio, projects are, are kind of passed around from level to level to level. That's just the nature of the industry. So taking that going direct and being able to kind of pull in, you know, really professional partners that are specialized. I mean, there's still that room for growth and I think it's just becoming more and more, um, specialized and they're looking for the best of the best talent to deliver on that. And they have more control of off of who they can and can't select.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, when agencies or or uh, partners or businesses are coming and reaching out to you, what seems to be one of the number one asks when in terms of work and, and what it is they need?
1: <laughs> it's usually not an ask; it's a complaint. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I, I've literally talked to thousands of agencies, and they, I, I could, I could recite every single issue they've had with a development partner or some kind of a <laughs> development project that went, you know, array. It's just it's always kind of more of a venting session and I kind of look at myself as a therapist sometimes (laughs) just listening and talking and it's and I I love what we do and I love selling what we do because I know the feeling that we give to our clients when they've experienced you know a great partner Um, it's something that you know motivates me to kind of keep pushing forward Um, so I would say it's first, it's, it's a complaint. Um, <laughs> once we get into beyond that and the kind of a uh, comfort level is there and the trust is there and they start talking about what their needs are, it's really a mixed bag. Um, we're seeing more on, on the enterprise side, in terms of enterprise innovation, okay. companies are starting to understand the value of beautiful software and how they can build different products and apps that can, you know, even if it's built on top of an existing internal software, um, that can enhance uh, something internally. Or it could be uh, an, an area of their business that you know needs to be more streamlined. they're still using you know paper trails to yeah, document things correcting they want efficiencies yeah, you know something that would take two weeks to do. we can you know build a you know a software application that can do it in fifteen minutes those those cost savings are huge, and then the agency side i mean it's it's a lot of um uh really beautiful and oftentimes complex interfaces yeah. um a lot of interactivity and animations that. You know, they're trying to use it to get that ooh and ah effect. Exactly. Um, but there's also a huge focus on pixel perfect uh development um to make sure that what we're building is in line with uh, what they've promised their clients. So Yeah.
0: It's providing that, that the user experience has become that much more important, especially yeah. at this day and age. If, if that experience isn't there, you're just going to lose so much traffic and so much potential conversions, business that you might be Getting out of that if, Sure, if it was otherwise. And one thing that I, I did actually find out is that I, I heard that you're big into Bitcoin. <laughs> so kind of curious about that. what what do you think and not even just Bitcoin, but cryptocurrency, what kind of role is that going to be playing in, in e-commerce? So I think it's gonna play a tremendous role in
1: e-commerce over time. I think there's still a long way to go until it's you know fully adopted. You only have a small segment of the population that's actually embraced cryptocurrencies or digital currencies um you know if you look at a lot of the decentralized applications that are out there most of the users that are on those applications it's the people that have invested in them so it's not really the broader market of people that have you know randomly wanted to kind of get involved it's the thousands of people that are looking to get an early in early on a project and they're the initial kind of early jump. adopters yeah so I think a lot of the metrics that we're seeing in terms of adoption, it's skewed because the the, the broader masses haven't really kind of got onto that yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look as a whole, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of volatility. Yeah. So imagine, you know, being on Amazon and spending, you know, some Bitcoin that's valued at, you know, $3,800 today. And then the next day it drops like 10 or 15 percent or whatever currency you're talking about. I mean... How do you account for that volatility? And I think um a lot of that's gonna come from uh a trend that's you know more in line with like stable coins, okay. where it's a it's a currency that's backed by US dollar. Um so there's a one-to-one correlation. So it's always kind of a uh, it's an it's an even value as opposed to yeah. the volatility of you know ten, fifteen, fifty percent, you know, plus or
0: minus price swings. Yeah, and that I'm glad you bring that up because it it seems that Bitcoin's been suffering a little bit. That that seems to be the one that everyone kind of knows about. You know, there are those other cryptocurrencies. Sure. Ethereum seems to be one that's kind of gaining some popularity, but uh, I think even in November we saw that Bitcoin actually took a pretty big hit. Yeah. Um do you think Bitcoin's going to re- like return to its former glory or is it going to be another uh cryptocurrency that's going to ultimately take its place? I mean, there's
1: always been these things or or articles of, you know, who's going to dethrone Bitcoin. Yeah. Bitcoin, I mean, it, it is the, the benchmark. and I think the brand recognition alone, I mean, it's it's what gives it its dominance. Um, so I, I don't see uh, one specific project dethroning it. Um, what I would like to see is less dependency as a market on Bitcoin because everything is correlated. So, you know, Bitcoin goes up, market goes up, Bitcoin goes down, market tanks. Very hand in hand. I, exactly. And it's, it's kind of unfair to a lot of projects that are actually... You know, doing well and performing well, Um, we're going to get to a point where it's just going to be a a matter of supply and demand. You know, there's only 21 million, you know, Bitcoin (laughs) that will ever be created once we've kind of, you know, gotten to that threshold. So it's going to increase in value exponentially.
0: I think, you know, we're going to see where it was and beyond. But
1: it's going to take, you know, several years to
0: get there. So Bitcoin is kind of the poster child of of cryptocurrency. Do you think it's the lack of one central cryptocurrency is what's hurting the the market as a whole, or or is it just the fact that Bitcoin is so tied to cryptocurrency? I think there's
1: different ways to look at it. I think Bitcoin as a store of value. You know, if that's kind of a you know look at that as a, as like a bar of gold. You know, that's versus looking at it as, you know, something that's going to, you know, pendulum the market one way or another. I think that is kind of the the focal currency right now. There are thousands of projects, um, whether you want to classify them as actual digital currencies or tokens, um, they've kind of flooded the market. Um, that infiltration of the market has caused a lot of problems. There's been a lot of scam projects and projects that you know, have taken advantage of a lot of people with very limited regulation. Um, now that we're seeing much more regulation, or even talks of regulation coming into the market, um, that's gonna you know change things a lot. Especially like you know now you're talking about you know uh, securitized tokens. So basically, there's a level of governance. Uh, it's basically like a, like a stock, um, but in a digital format. Okay. But there is a governance a governance level, and they have to kind of abide by you know sec regulation here in the united states for the ones that are actually being transacted here so once that happens i think it's going to give the broader market a lot more comfort um but we're definitely going to see a lot of projects being weeded out because you know there just really isn't necessarily a need for blockchain within them i I can't tell you how many projects are it's a random software application that says that says that they're you know blockchain based and it's like well you used to accept a credit card for you know your 19.99 a month subscription. Now you've got to use your token. I mean, <laughs> what's what's the point? There's no real underlying value that it's actually doing besides the fact that you know someone had the bright idea of raising a lot of money without giving up any equity by offering a token. Exactly. Someone's got you know 30, 40, 50 million dollars in the bank, and you know <laughs> they're making up like a bandit. It's still very much the wild wild west. Is kind of what I'm getting at.
0: Yeah, and that's that's one thing that I've noticed. It just seems like, there, like you said, there's no really central regulation. It's it's kind of, and I think that's what contributes to much of the volatility that you see um, throughout cryptocurrencies. Uh, ultimately, though, I, I, there are a lot of benefits to it. Uh, I mean, just it'll allow a lot more people to actually purchase online. Uh, the entry level is much lower. Um, you'll be able to get in once it is centralized, um, and it is considered usable by I guess the public versus just the investors. Yeah. One, and then, thing
1: I, one thing I thought would be kind of cool is if like a company like Amazon, for example, um, just to get people's feet wet with a digital currency is if they, they did some kind of an incentive program or um, rewards program where people had a wallet with their Amazon token, whatever you want to call it. And people like, all right, you know, how am I going to spend this? And they realize that, well, I can apply this to my purchase. I can use this I might be able to, to spend it elsewhere. Then all of a sudden people start asking questions and trying to figure out as opposed to telling the average person, Hey, by the way, you've got to go out and you have to buy our Amazon token. And they're like, well, I've got to take us dollars and convert it to your token (laughs) to go and buy this product. And then I don't know how much it's going to be worth after I buy it. I
0: mean, it's just, it's it's so many steps in the, in the user journey. Just simplify it down to give them a trigger that's worthwhile in order to use it. Yeah. Completely agree. So, that being said, with the global e-commerce is, is slated to grow up to $4 trillion, actually, at this point in 2019, how do you think that's going to change the overall buyer's experience and, and how companies market? So I think there's a couple things to look at.
1: One's the product experience. I think um, if companies aren't doing it now, it's really looking at their product mix and trying to, you know, shrink it to some degree. So I think less options for consumers, the better, because it kind of gets them through that decision-making process. If there's too many options or inundated, you have a higher likelihood of card abandonment because they're going to go elsewhere, they get distracted. So I think having um, that, you know, very clear focus on what products you're offering um, is is extremely important. You know, having thousands of SKUs is great. um, But if you can, I've seen multi-million dollar e-commerce businesses off of Two, three, or four products, or one product with twenty variations. You know, so that's something that uh, I mean, I think is going to be a a dominant trend. The other is is a user experience. Um, I think people are looking more and the overall like design implementation of these sites, understanding what's driving conversion, what's driving activity, what people are looking at, why they're looking at certain things, what colors they're looking at, what sizes they're looking at. Well, resonates. yeah, Yeah, I mean, then you get into a lot of the. The kind of collective intelligence or like you know data mining that you're getting from your e-commerce experience, and then you know that that kind of segues into, into lead gen. It's finding ways that you're going to optimize your e-commerce experience because it's a competitive landscape. Oh, um, which I think at, over time we're going to see more co- consolidation in the space. Um, I mean, even now, I mean, you can go to Walmart.com, and next thing you know, you're buying Walmart products, you're buying products from other retailers. You're you've got like affiliate links in there. I mean it's almost like overkill. Uh um, yeah, I agree. So I think I at least I'd like to see a lot more consolidation in the space um so that it weeds out, you know, s- potentially s- some smaller kind of, you know, clutter that's that's there but also allows, you know, the larger platforms the ability to create an experience that's going to give users a more streamlined approach to what they're buying and when they're buying it.
0: Hmm. So just an op- overall simplifying of, of of the process and even just the market. Um, and I know you mentioned a couple of trends, are, are there any consistent trends you see across e-commerce platforms that, that kind of stand out to you? Uh, I think when you look at the different types of like e-commerce
1: platforms, I mean, it seems like everyone's getting wind of like the Shopify's of the world that how streamlined and simplified it is to develop and create a store. Um, it's one thing to actually like launch a store. It's another, another kind of hurdle to actually drive traction. And that was my experience when i had my consumer products business i mean i was able to get into thousands of retail stores but the biggest problem that i had was you know moving product off the shelf and that takes dollars it takes you know marketing dollars ad dollars to build a brand awareness to educate consumers to you know make them them aware of your product yeah give them a reason why why yours is better than the other and why they should buy from you Um, there's a lot of growth hacking ways to do that But at the end of the day, it it really costs dollars to to do that. And I think a lot of people are realizing that um, it's going to take a lot of capital to make that successful. So I think it's it's almost causing a lot of hesitation with people who are, you know, thinking about launching an e-commerce store or or product or brand because they're saying, hey, wait, you know, this is not as easy as just, you know, Throwing some some T-shirts on a on a Shopify site and I'm gonna be a millionaire. It's <laughs> it's 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 a grind,
0: and it's tough too because it's such an unfamiliar space to so many people. Um, I think sometimes if you do have that information and that knowledge of of how Shopify works or any e-commerce platform, you almost take it for granted, uh, and then it, it's it, it becomes even with Shopify trying to build out certain experiences. It, Shopify acts as a storefront. And its I think a lot of those e-commerce platforms are, in a sense are limited to that. Yeah. Uh, you kind of have to take it at face value for what it is. Um, but what would you say are some of the most important aspects to take into account if, if you want to build a good uh, e-commerce experience? Uh,
1: definitely, I mean going back, it's, it's, it's your product mix. It's the uh, the design um, positioning that, that you're going. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, your pricing strategy. I mean there's a laundry list of all the things that you, you kind of should shouldn't do it's really simplifying the overall e-commerce experience for people um i mean not making people think translates to everything that we do <laughs> i think that's what's that's what's going to help conversion it's just I mean, making things kind of like extremely simplified as possible
0: well it's it's almost you run into I guess we can call it that Netflix syndrome, where if you provide too many options, you kind of just start at a standstill. Like the simpler you can make that whole process of just selecting an option and and moving them down that funnel, the the better it's gonna be overall. Sure,
1: it's funny because if you look like years ago, um, there was a a big trend or a lot of commotion around um, having like a universal e-commerce experience where you can shop any store from a single destination. And I've seen that kind of fizzle over the years, Mm -hmm. just because I think there's a lot of complexities that that go along with that. As opposed, now you have like the Amazons of the world that are becoming more more platform focused, and they're trying to bring people in that way. So it's it's interesting seeing the industry shift of hey, we want we want to go towards you know individual you know e commerce experiences to a central e commerce experience for everything to hey come onto my platform because I'm going to make your life easier. Um, so it's, I mean, the, the I think the industry as it keeps growing, it's shifting and trying to, you know, accommodate different types of sellers that are out there.
0: Exactly, and I, I think ultimately what it boils down to is, is that simplicity. It's, yeah. it's the the user overall just wants, hey, this is what I want to buy. Point me in the right direction. Give me the least amount of obstacles, and I'll make that purchase. Sure. And I, think,
1: I, I think the bigger question is like how how things are going to impact retail, you know, traditional brick and mortar's retail because you have this big shift now where um, you know, pop-up shops, for example, you know, you can pretty much go in, browse, and then, you know, you're not taking anything with you, but you're ordering it online. It's being sent to you. So the re- retail footprint is getting smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. People are focusing their dollars primarily on e-commerce. So it's like, what are you doing to kind of bridge that gap? So you have these big, you know, behemoth stores that were traditionally taking up tons of retail, you know, space, now realizing that, hey, you know, we don't have to be this all-encompassing, massive, you know, retailer. Now, there's a more simplified way to do things, but that's going to really rely
0: on the broader masses to accept that. And and I, it's funny you say that, pop-up shots, because I, I think one of the reasons brick-and-mortar is suffering so heavily is because people are treating those brick-and-mortar shops like pop-up shops. They, yeah. People are going into, the, into that retailer, looking around, seeing their options, but then ultimately... Looking online to see where they can get the better deal, where sure. they can make that purchase. Hey, I want this just in another color. <laughs> yeah, it'd be interesting if retailers start like making a transparency initiative
1: where, you know, they're showing you know w- what competitors are paying or w- what they're offering. So it says, hey, you know, and, and it's funny because I think consumers are so smart that if, like you know what, it's three percent less at this store, but I'm here today. Why mm. am I going to wait a day or drive across mm. town to go get there or to save this if I'm here today? And I think. People will respect that, and that would actually increase conversions because you're stopping the user from opening up their phone, you know, checking where, where they can find a cheaper, you know, essentially price shopping on the spot. Whereas yeah. you're like, hey, here it is. Make your choice. We love your business. If not, no problem. Um, I think retailers are afraid of that, but I, I strongly believe that if you offer the consumers that option, it would be a, a game changer.
0: And I think actually that would cause a huge shift. That that would be an approach because. Over the years it's 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 no secret brick and mortar has just been suffering. It's yeah. it's as as online sales are growing, brick and mortar is just kind of slowly taking a dive and you can see that even with, with larger businesses. Uh who was it, Toys R Us. They closed their doors yeah. uh last year and you know Sears almost Sears it's, 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 everyone's struggling now, so it's 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 insane to see how that's shifted so drastically. Um, so going into two thousand nineteen, what are some new technologies that you're really excited about so this may or may not apply to e-commerce but as, as a whole um,
1: in web development we're big fans of component based development we're seeing more and more of um, instead of a, a building a traditional templated website mm. building out a site into a series of components that you can use to develop pages and a b test those pages you know it's essentially it's more modularity for an for an end kind of cms admin yeah so imagine if you're like a you know a cmo at a large organization you know you have a 500 page website that's comprised of 12 to 15 templates it's rinse and repeat it's there's a lot of redundancy it's the same user experience and now all of a sudden you want to be able to create a more you know uh pages on the fly a b test them or use data to to drive you know why you want a, a carousel you know in this portion of the page versus a contact form in, a, in an image here versus a text area above that, you're allowing data to drive the UI as opposed to personal experience or preference. Exactly. And I think that's gonna be a growing shift. It'll probably be a, a kind of a, a happy medium because you're gonna to have to bridge the gap between beautiful design hmm. and data. And I'm a firm believer that if you have a beautiful design in data, you know, you can really help increase overall performance. So that whole component-based approach, I think, is going to really allow that to happen.
0: And it's funny you say that because we've uh, been seeing a shift towards hyper-personalization, which is going off exactly what you you mentioned, even adjusting, say, I'm landing on your website, and then whether I'm not more in the awareness phase or or more consideration phase, even shifting that website to act accordingly. Because what's the point in showing someone – you know information they 've already seen if they're moved further down the funnel um, and it's using that a b testing heat mapping reports, all of that information that data to make a smart decision versus just like you said an opinionated one where okay, we think this might work um, it's it's really evaluating it so yeah personalization it's it's
1: it's tricky, but it can be wildly impactful if it's done right, but also too i mean it's it's still to some regards like in its infancy. Whereas, I mean, if you're detecting an IP address, I mean, we're up in, in Bethel, Connecticut. Yeah. Sometimes our IP address is, is reflected as like, you know, Worcester or Springfield, Massachusetts. You know, <laughs> hey, you know, i you're from from Massachusetts. It's like, wait, no, I'm... Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's like, you know, it detects that you were using Wi-Fi at a Starbucks, and it's like all of a sudden you go to a website and you're starting to see all this targeted content that's Starbucks specific. A lot of it is like, I think it's going to be it's going to need to be refined like over time oh, mm-hmm. because there's so many l- gaps and the last thing you want is to offer such a hyper personalized site that it it breaks the experience and it, and people, you know, realize that it's so obvious that you're trying to target them as opposed to uh, having more of like guided personalization so you're tracking user engagement on the site. You know, if they're looking at case studies for a specific brand, if they're, you know, entering specific information on a contact form, if they're playing a video and you see them kind of replaying it at a certain spot, if they're reading certain kinds of white papers, really getting super granular on the overall kind of experience on the site.
0: But to do that, you've gotta have someone stay on that site. Uh, It's the information, the information is everything because that's, uh, going to your Starbucks example that's one of the things that um Starbucks has done really well is not, not the app experience is so hyper personalized but there's also the information they have from you in terms of what sure. your orders are and it's it's a little bit different in in that sense but I agree with you in in terms of the hyper personalization is only going to go as far as the information that you're feeding it if yeah. if it's if it's not the right info then like you said I might be thinking that I'm marketing to someone in Bethel and end up you know or talking to someone in, in Massachusetts, or vice versa. So
1: yeah, if you're an insurance company, and you're selling someone a plan based on their their location, and you're you know positioning that plan to a completely different state. I mean, you're you're losing people because of that, and it's that's because what, at
0: that point you're so far off the mark. Exactly, it's almost the opposite. And people
1: are like, all right, what's going on here? You know, people you know consumers aren't aren't stupid. They know what's going <laughs> on. So it's 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 a it's a tricky uh, you know conundrum that a lot of people are trying to deal with. And exactly.
0: That's, that's a million dollar question, right? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> so, first of all, our, you know, I want to say thank you, Jonathan, for coming in, getting a chance to, to speak with us, uh, teaching us a little bit more about what you do, uh, e-commerce and, and Bitcoin. Do you have anything that you'd want to share before we, we wrap things up?
1: I don't think so. I think we covered a lot. Of <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you having me. It was, it was really great. And, uh, yeah, it's great. Hopefully uh, added some value.
0: Oh, absolutely, and and we'll have to have conversations about investing in cryptocurrency. <laughs> so. Yeah, by the dip. Um, but I want to say again, thank you for ha- for coming in, uh, speaking with us, and I want to thank everyone out there for tuning into ecom disruptors. Please subscribe and comment. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Electric Engine, and find more information at electricengine.com. And that's engine E N J I N. Thank you. This has been the eCommerce Disruptors podcast presented by Electric Engine. Subscribe today to stay up to date on all future episodes. Please follow us at Electric Engine on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or shoot us an email at podcast at electricengine.com. That's engine spelled E-N-J-I-N. Feel free to leave us any comments or questions about this episode and let us know what you'd want to hear on future episodes. Until next time, thanks for listening.